Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, January 11th, we are studying Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. St. Mark records two key events in the ministry of Jesus with great brevity, and yet there is great depth for us to explore this morning as we read the accounts of the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson served at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks, Tim. Really good to be here. So let's talk context. We're not that far along in Mark's Gospel at this point, but we've seen a little bit. What do we need to know leading up to this text, whether the Gospel of Mark as a whole or the immediate context? Right, right. As I'm sure a lot of the listeners have already noticed before, I mean, Mark is a very efficient gospel. Um, he doesn't spend a lot of time on things, and it's, and it's of course, been hypothesized that, um, and it probably isn't wrong, that, that the readers of Mark are probably also familiar with the other gospels as well. And um, so, uh, so, or at least the stories uh, that, that go along with him. So Mark, he does not waste any time. He doesn't give us a lot of, uh, you know, kind of reader's notes. He, is, he assumes a lot of us. And so in some ways, Mark is really a great gospel for people who already know the gospel story. Um, and, uh, but also it does assume a lot of our knowledge, not only of, you know, Jesus's life, but also the Old Testament for that matter. You know, unlike for example, Matthew. Matthew is just replete with all these Old Testament quotations. Uh, it seems like left and right. You know, uh, Matthew's always saying, you know, just as the, you know, the prophet so-and-so said, and and to fulfill this prophecy. And Mark doesn't have as much of that. Um, and so uh, we already had, we did have one quote, of course, uh, starting uh, at, in verse 2, Starting starting off with Isaiah the prophet, and uh, and that's really significant. We'll we'll dig into that a little bit more, um, but really uh, setting the t- uh, the tone for for John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, um, you know, doing the the forgiveness of sins and the baptizing, and now uh, Jesus is going to get baptized, and so probably, well, we'll we'll wait until he actually gets baptized. We'll we'll go back um, a little bit, but I'll, let me wrap up with this. Um, at least wrap up with the introduction. One of the key questions I think you can organize the whole gospel of Mark uh, with is really who is Jesus? And, um, and it's easy to see from the other gospels as well, but I think Mark does puts a particularly fine point on it that most of the people don't get it. I mean, certainly not the crowds, not the religious leaders, certainly, but even not his own disciples. They're they're fundamentally confused about who Jesus is and what he is here to do. Even when they get sort of the right titles, they don't fill them with the right content. They don't understand what it really means for Jesus, uh, you know, to be a Messiah, to be a king, even when they actually call him that. And so, you know, so this is for us as the readers of Mark, this is really the operative question that we ought to be asking. So who is 
this Jesus. And if we pay close attention, we get we get all of it, even in just these short verses, um, or at least we get it, it all prepared for us, um, you know, as we go through the entire book of Mark. So there's going to be a lot of things that will be revisited by by later guests, I'm sure. So. One more thought on the introduction as we look at these two texts in particular, or these two events in Jesus' life in particular, of the various things that Mark records, I, I think these two, the baptism and temptation of Jesus, are among the most abbreviated from the other Gospels, particularly the, the temptation. I mean, in Matthew and Luke, you get actual conversation between Jesus and the devil in terms of the temptation. Mark's just going to say he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But as we think about Mark and his unique contribution to what we know about Jesus, how do we bring in information from the other Gospels? What are appropriate ways to do that? And how do we weigh that together with what Mark does right. in his unique way? Right. Oh, that's that's such a good question. We could spend the whole time talking about. Um, I think as Christians, we, we sort of need to take a t- sort of a twofold approach that on the one hand, we don't want to rush in right away and fill in all the blanks, which we all know. I mean, especially if you know if you grew up as a Christian, you know, you got all these uh, stories rattling around in your head from Sunday school, like, oh yeah, and we know that Jesus went through these particular three temptations up on top of the temple and on the high, you know, high peak, and you know, turning stones into bread and all that. I think what we we can easily lose is that one of the values of Mark is that they are so efficient that he's, you know, he doesn't let us get distracted. In other words, it's almost easier to see the main point because John, you know, because Mark clears out all the extra stuff. Um, and so I think it's, it's easier to see the main thrust of it. In this case, for example, I think what it ends up really highlighting, uh, you know, for one thing is Jesus as, you know, the substitute for Israel, which we'll talk more about, but uh, I think it comes across so much more succinctly in that way. But on the flip side, we should not be hesitant. I mean, there are are these schools of ways to read the Bible. And, um, you know, in reading Mark on his own terms is important, but we also need to recognize that, you know, um, we're not approaching this as, you know, some kind of um, abstract academic exercise. I mean, this is the word of life for us. And so, you know, even as much as we can read Mark on its own terms, we should not be afraid to to bring in those other points. And so I, it's almost like we really need to be able to do both and be able to be clear about, okay, we're, we're just reading Mark on his own terms now. Okay, now let's think through and fill in the gaps. Um, and you might say that we're reading it more dogmatically, you might say, um, you know, to really put all the pieces of Jesus's life together. So there's a place for both. But I think we need to be able to do both. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we can. I think we can fall off on either side to sort of right. just blend everything together and not notice the particular words that the various gospel writers give to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that we would miss some of that flavor that's there and the nuance that we need to see to get the emphases that they want us to get. But we can also fall off on the other side of completely divorcing them from each other and even— I mean, you don't have to read too much academic literature on this to see how 
you people are looking for contradictions or something like that. And that's going way, way too far the other way. This is one scripture that God has given us. It is one right. word. And we do need to be able to do both of those things to see, okay, what is Mark doing in giving it to us this way? And how does that fit with the whole testimony of God all from the other three evangelists and then the whole of scripture? So, I mean, we, yeah, we need to do both. Right. And I think actually the very first verse, um, confirms that for us. This is not a gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that way, there we may have four gospels, but there is only one gospel, of course. That's right. Yeah. The the gospel according to St. Mark or the gospel right. according to St. Matthew, the way that right. it gets introduced right. in the divine service, that's right. that's on purpose. This is the good news about Jesus recorded for us by four different evangelists, but it is that one good news. And that's what Mark's given us. So let's read the text that we've got in Mark chapter one. This is verses nine through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's the text for today, Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. So, Pastor Johnson, the text starts with three short words that we might be tempted to skip over, but we should pay attention to them in those days. Why do we need to pay attention to those three words? Right, because those are, you know, that should send up a prophetic right flag for us. Well, not not in the sense that it's bad, but... If we're close readers of the Old Testament, oh, this should sound so familiar. And there's so much, um, you know, freight along with this. You know, back, you know, in the Old Testament, these words in those days um, often get used by the prophets to kind of signify a, you might say, a, um, you know, a change in epochs, if you want to put it in fancy terms, or like, you know, that it's that you're moving from sort of one age to the next. It's a tectonic change. Um, and I've got a couple of examples. And so it, it does it often. I know at least my inner skeptic would probably say, really, Johnson, three words, <laughs> you know, you're going to you're going to pull out of that. Just wait. So, um, you know, take, for instance, I think Jeremiah uses this most frequently. So let me give you two examples from uh, from the book of Jeremiah. The first one is from chapter 3. And keep in mind that almost all of Jeremiah's prophecies are, you know, if uh, you recall, of course, he is, you know, a prophet during the waning days of Jerusalem as they're, you know, as uh, they're being besieged by, you know, the Babylonians and they're about to head off into exile. And uh, and his prof- uh, his prophecies, he's the one who stays in in uh, the promised land, whereas Ezekiel is the one who goes off to uh, to Babylon, and um, and he's constantly flipping back and forth between kind of like the present doom versus this future hope that they have over and over again. And so, for instance, in Jeremiah three verse sixteen, it says, "When you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord; it shall not come to mind, or be remembered, or missed." It shall not be made again. Now, that at first, that sounds terrible. You know, why, why would they not even talk about the Ark of the Covenant? You know, how could how could the, the most prized, uh, you know, sort of token of, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, of Israelite worship be just a nothing? 
Well, he goes on. He says, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own heart. In those days, so once again, he he uses the phrase, again, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come uh, from the land of the north and the land that I gave your fathers for heritage. I mean, so there's like a million promises in all this. But in short, what he's saying is he's describing these future days um, when not only Israel, north and south will be unified, but the nations will even stream to Jerusalem once again as the legitimate um, you know, place of the Lord's presence. You know, in other words, they aren't going to need the Ark of the Covenant because God himself is going to be there. Now, this is all the more stark, though, given that Jeremiah is writing this during the time of, you know, of some of the darkest days in Israel, where they are being, uh, they're being besieged by the Babylonians, and you know, and their, and their fate seems to be doomed. And so, in those days, provides them with a future hope and a, you know, and a, um, a, a massive break between the the desperate days of the present and the hopeful days of the future, and. Um, so that's that's just one example of several. Let me give you one more real quick. Um, you know, in Jeremiah 31, um, starting with verse 29, it says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the te- children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each, each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, days are coming. You notice that, that future oriented phrase declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now I'm not going to take the time to explain the whole grapes, you know, uh, saying, but the point here is, is that Jeremiah again is prophesying a, a major change in sort of, you know, the position and the, um, how would I put this? The, um, the situation of Israel, where, where what was true before is not now true. And he even says, you know, I'm going to make a new covenant with them. I mean, that's a major, that's a tectonic shift. And so my point is, is that in those days, in the Old Testament comes to be a signal and flag almost always of, you know, a not only a radical change in Israel's future, but a one for the better, not for the worse. And so now when we hear this in Mark, so I know this has been a kind of a long diatribe about it, but let's get finally back to Mark. When it says, in those days, the reader of Mark, who knows his Old Testament well, um, should immediately think, oh, this is going to be huge. This is going to be a massive change. This is going to be for the better of God's people. And frankly, um, this is bigger. Uh, Well, this is what Jeremiah has ultimately been pointing to all along, is the coming of the Messiah and uh, and the change that that will actually bring for all of God's people. So, all right, end of sermon. <laughs> so, I mean, one thing that really stands out here, and Pastor Kilgo, in introducing the gospel to us, mentioned how Mark doesn't do a lot of quoting of the Old Testament. You mentioned that, too. Matthew is the one who's known for quoting the Old Testament. And yet, you see here in this verse, and we'll see it again and again, that you really need to know the Old Testament to understand Mark, even if he's not directly quoting it. He's making these references to it all the time, so that when he starts writing in verse 9, in those days, you should be thinking, the time of fulfillment is here, because because of all that's happening. And I think, so, in those days, well, well, what days are we 
talking about the days of fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, and and John's baptism, which we read about last time, and now Jesus is going to receive in this text, that's a signal that, well, I mean, can we say like the end times have actually started to come in Jesus? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was trying to avoid the word eschatological so that we don't scare <laughs> anybody away, but I mean, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, the, the end times have dawned in the day of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, and now, of course, not like, not like end times bad, but end times good. Right, right, right. And, and Mark's going to draw that out for us throughout, oh, yeah. this, throughout this account. So he's going to do that here in, in the baptism of Jesus. So in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now we, we see here, as we were saying earlier, the very brief nature of Mark's account here. He simply relates the facts of what happens. So bringing in, as we were talking about, bringing in some of the stuff we know from Matthew and Luke and John and trying to take into account what Mark's got here for us, what are we, what are we learning here as Jesus is baptized? Right. Well, you know, the thing is, is that I don't think there's that much, um, there's not that really that much missing from Mark's account. Um, believe it or not, it's just that he doesn't have a lot of the, uh, he just doesn't give us a lot of extras, mm. um, that, uh, that especially, um, Matthew and, uh, and Luke will expound upon a lot more. Um, because first of all, we've already got in, you know, in, uh, the previous section that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So that's already established. And that, you know, the people were coming and they were confessing their sins, uh, you know, to, uh, to John and the Jordan. And, um, and John even acknowledges that, that there's this guy who's coming that whose way he's preparing, of course, who's going to, uh, you know, who's going to, uh, who isn't going to baptize like me, he's going to baptize with the Holy spirit. And so when, uh, when Jesus comes to be baptized, you know, we have to you know, read all that, that form part into it, which is of course, a little bit unsettling to us. We, who, you know, if we don't already know who Jesus is, uh, or I'm sorry, we, who know who Jesus is, we think, well, why on earth would he need to be baptized? And it's still, it's just as pressing of a question for the other gospels as well. Um, but, uh, but he's being baptized like he's a sinner. Like he's just another one of these, you know, these people who are going, uh, who are repenting and who want to have their sins forgiven. And, um, but the same point that's made in the other gospels is really true here too. He comes, um, as a standard, you know, he comes in the place of repentant sinners. And so you might even say he becomes, you know, one of the people of God here. Um, or I should say even he comes as the representative of all the people of God, um, and then, you know, but we don't have the opposition by John the Baptist, but I think in some ways that we as the reader should sort of already have that. You know, if we, if we recognize that he is the, if we recognize from the very first verse that he's the son of God, we should be asking, even without John's prompting, like, why would the son of God need to be baptized? Um, you know, he, he's becoming that which he's going to save. I mean, that's really, you know, filling in the blanks. That's really what's going on here. So, and that that's a really important point to catch to the theological significance of Jesus baptism. This is one of those events in the life of our Lord that I think there's opportunity for confusion concerning why, you know, again, why is Jesus doing this? And 
I've heard some Christians say, well, Jesus does this as an example. You are to, he wants you to be baptized, so he goes and gets baptized for you. But that's, that's not what you're saying. And I think this is a really important point to catch when it comes to Jesus' baptism. He is baptized for you. The same thing we would say concerning his crucifixion, concerning his resurrection, his ascension, we would say of his baptism too. This is Jesus doing this for you, for sinners. This is, to use you know dogmatic terms, this is gospel for you. It's not law, you must do this, but this is gospel. Jesus comes to stand in your place. Think of in John's gospel, where John identifies Jesus right around his baptism, saying, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus is doing there in the water. And as you said, you know, without all those extra things that you you read in, say, Matthew's gospel concerning the conversation between John and Jesus, Mark really just puts that question in front of you, and he, he answers it for you. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who comes to take away your sins. Right. And if you don't mind us taking a little bit of a tangent, you brought up one really good point that we ought to bear in mind all throughout the reading of the gospel. Um, you know, you said uh, he doesn't just come to set an example. I mean, <laughs> that's a very uh, fundamentally different way of reading the gospel. It is. And I think we don't always appreciate it as much because, frankly, you know, we don't you know, we know better. So we sort of know intrinsically there are some things that just because Jesus doesn't, doesn't mean that he's actually giving us an example. You know, the most obvious one is that, hey, Jesus goes and gets himself crucified. He's not setting you an example that you need to go get some Roman soldiers, you know, to go and hang you up on a cross. I mean, that's, he does it, um, well, on the one hand, so that you would be crucified with him, but not in the same way that he is crucified. That's the whole point. You know, he, you know, the father doesn't need another Jesus. He's already got one and you don't have to be it. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's actually a little bit like, uh, you know, when John the Baptist goes around saying, Hey, I'm not the Christ. Right. And you don't have to be either. Mm. But, yeah. um, but it, I think it's when it gets to be some of the things that we might even dare to call morals, um, not that baptism would ever be kind of confused in that way. We need to be really careful when we talk about the example of Jesus, um, because it's not to say that he never becomes an example for us, but, um, but you know, it's not our job to go around and repeat Jesus's ministry because he's the king and I am not. He's the savior. I am not. And so naturally there's a lot of things, um, you know, not to pick on it, but I mean, this is always, <laughs> this was has always been the challenge with the, uh, you know, with the what would Jesus do bracelets um, and, uh, you know, but all the theology that kind of goes in along with that is Jesus does not come, and, you know, uh, you know, as an example for us, he comes as a savior, which doesn't mean he never sets an example. But when we get that, when we get that backwards, the gospel becomes a very, very confusing thing to read then. And so uh, it's, it's good for you to remind us to, uh, to set us on the straight and narrow. Well, and in particular with a text like this, and as you said, it, we're not throwing Jesus as example out the window by any means. We have Paul right. saying, Paul, Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So absolutely, following the example of Jesus is certainly more than appropriate on numerous occasions. But when that's all we're looking for in the Gospels, we're going to miss so much, and particularly in a text like this. If we're going to look at Jesus' baptism as an example for us, rather than as him as Savior for us, then we're, we're going to miss the point. 
and and that's where I mean we want to keep first things first is the is the point I think we're both trying to make. Right. So Jesus comes to take the sins of the world on himself there in the Jordan River when he's baptized by John. And then we get as, as you said there's really not a ton missing here. We do see a lot of the same things that we see in the other gospels. Verse, verses 10 and 11 describe what happens actually after Jesus is baptized. We've got about three minutes here before the break to get started. Let's, let's start with the heavens are torn open. What's the significance of that? Right. Yeah, the, the heavens are torn open because God's coming down. Um, and but this, once again, we should let this kind of freely connote all the things in the old testament uh you know connect with all those other you know events where you know where the heavens are torn i mean if you remember what is that i think that's isaiah who says you know oh lord that uh, that you would rend the heavens and come down in fact we've got a, a hymn based on that mm-hmm. and uh this is exactly what he's doing it's exactly what he's doing but there's there's all these examples of well let, let's take one step back real quickly and set the stage maybe a little bit more broadly in throughout all the Bible. That um, if anybody from my church is listening, they're so tired of hearing this, but I think it's worth repeating. But um, in the Bible, one way that we can actually organize what you might call, you know, the our big our big problem is um, will God come to dwell with us or not? You know, in uh, in uh, the very first chapters of Genesis, one of the ways that we can reframe the fall, I mean, not to say that it, that it excludes sin or anything like that, but one of the problems that it's caused is that, um, you know, uh, the, the people are no longer in God's immediate presence. I mean, it talks about uh, how Adam and Eve uh, basically walked with the Lord there in the garden, or actually he walked with them. Uh, and after that, they're not just evicted from a really nice place to live. They're evicted from the presence of God. And you can actually kind of look at the whole narrative arc of, uh, of the entire Bible as, well, you know, is humanity going to be welcomed back into God's presence again? Or is God going to be present with his people once more? And what we do is we get these, especially through the Old Testament, we get these little, uh, you know, I don't want to call them breadcrumbs. They're more than that, but these... Uh, you know, the, these kind of incipient steps, right? You know, he comes to Abram, right? And makes this, this covenant promise with him. He comes to, um, he comes to Jacob at Bethel and, uh, and, and reveals himself. He comes to Moses in the burning bush. And then it seems to get more intense from there. He, he comes down on Mount Sinai and he gives them there the instructions for the tabernacle where he can actually be present with his people and not destroy them. And of, of course, you know, how, how importantly the tabernacle and then later the temple actually figure into the entire narrative history of the people of God. And yet, um, going back, once again, going back to the exile, one of the, one of the great curses of exile is not just that Jerusalem is destroyed, but that God leaves his temple. He exits stage left. And, uh, and, the, and the people are forsaken and Jerusalem is forsaken. You know, that's all in, 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 uh, in Ezekiel, right? With the throne chair to God, I think it's chapter 10 or 11, whatever it is. And, um, and so at all these points, we keep kind of, we are prompted to ask this question, is God going to continue to dwell with his people? And ultimately, I mean, you know, the, the answer is not in, you know, either of the Old Testament temples, um, 
but it comes to us in Jesus Christ. But even then, that theme is not dropped because, of course, when we finally get to the very end of the book of Revelation, the characteristic uh, greatness of the uh, of the heavenly Jerusalem is that he's going to be there with them, right? He's going to dwell in their presence. He will be with them and they will be his God or he will be their God. And they will be his people and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, right? So, so the, the point is, is that for God to come and visit isn't just like, hey, that was a really great, cool thing that happened, um, you know, that you can talk with your friends about over lunch the next day. This is for God to actually come and be present is sort of the stuff of salvation itself. Um, and so when we see that happening at, the, at Jesus's baptism, we need to be able to kind of comprehend the full weight of all this, that this is not just a, an Old Testament cool thing. Um, and I, I went way past the three minutes, didn't I? Um, That's all right. But yeah, but we'll make it up on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just a cool Old Testament thing, but this is something that uh, that is ushering in salvation for uh, for all of mankind. And we, all right. That's probably a good place to stop. That's a great place. We'll we'll pick that up on the other side of the break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to us on Worldwide KFUL. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, January 11th. We're studying Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. We've got Pastor Jeremiah Johnson with us. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were talking about how God has come down. He's torn open the heavens. He's fulfilling these promises that he's made in the Old Testament, restoring his dwelling with his people, as he's been doing throughout the scriptures. And now we get two more things, again, familiar from the other gospel accounts as well, that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and a voice speaks from heaven. Start with the Spirit descending on Jesus. Right, yeah. So the uh, once again, we're going to go back into the Old Testament again because it, and um, this fits with you know Mark's character. He assumes that we know our Old Testament scriptures, and so especially the Book of Isaiah uh, focuses upon the uh, the Messiah being one upon whom the Spirit of God is. Right. In fact, you probably recognize so many of these passages, especially uh, you know kind of from the Advent season. You know, Isaiah sixty one says the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And it goes on, and uh, and of course, it, and uh, I'm not just positing this. Jesus says <laughs> he actually says that this is about him, and I think that's what it is. Uh, his time to the in Nazareth, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I know he actually quotes this passage about himself. This is about me. Or um, 
Yeah, the uh, in Isaiah 41, you've got behold my servant, and of course that is a huge loaded topic in uh, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, my servant, whom I have chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I think this is something we we probably have read a million times, but I just don't think we talk or think much about. The Father actually endows Jesus with the Spirit. Now, I mean, you know, the, the the catechism class kid in me says like, well, wait a minute. If they're all, you know, they're all the Trinity, right? And so isn't there already a relationship between the Spirit and the Son? And how can the Spirit be put on the Son if sort of he's already the Trinity with him? I don't know. But all like what I can tell you is that this is how the Bible talks. This is actually what is revealed to us, is that the Spirit is actually comes upon Christ. And then even Isaiah 11, you know, there shall come forth uh, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, which is going to introduce Jesus as the king, which we'll get to in just a little bit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, and so on and so forth. And so and those are just three examples. It's all over the place. And so Jesus, just by the spirit coming down on him in baptism, that should that should start like you know, it's like we're playing a pinball game. You're hitting all the bumpers just right, and they're lighting up all these Old Testament Bible passages over and over and over again. And so, um, yeah, so it and it starts to introduce some thoughts that aren't, you know, Mark doesn't even really capitalize upon yet, but that, as I mentioned before, he's going to be associated with the suffering servant. So this is going to give us a kind of already, it's just in the first chapter, a new dimension to Jesus' identity. And that's, he's not just going to be the son of God, but the son of God who suffers for his people. And for us, that's kind of a duh statement. But keep in mind, for Jesus' the, the people, uh, you know, for his disciples, for the crowds, for the religious leaders, that is not an assumption necessarily on their part. They did not see the Messiah necessarily as one who would suffer. And so we should let that be surprising to us as, it, as it's meant to be. So, so yeah, the anointing with the spirit here, then, as you said, connects to those Old Testament passages, particularly from the book of Isaiah, that again is pointing us to Jesus as the one who comes to take our sins. As we were saying earlier, in terms of Jesus being savior in his baptism, much more than example, here again, with the descent of the spirit upon Jesus is pointing us in that direction, identifying Jesus as the one whom Isaiah foretold, who would bear the sins of the people, who would carry our iniquity and bear our diseases, be wounded for our transgressions, and all of those familiar things that we know from the Good Friday reading, Jesus is being identified as that one right here at his baptism. And then the Father adds to it. So the Spirit has descended to indicate that, and now the Father is going to be even more explicit, saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Which again, I think we need to read that through that lens that Mark is giving us, of seeing Jesus as the Son of God who's come to suffer and die for us. Right. Yeah, th- this is not just a uh, an assertion that Mark himself is making, but, I mean, it's, isn't it fascinating that within the very first chapter, just a few verses, he actually grounds this as a divine revelation. Like, well, it's not just that, hey, I, I really think this guy probably is the Son of God. No, God says he is his son. I mean, there's no there's no two ways about this. Either Mark's an outright liar, or God Himself speaks from heaven to uh, you know to indicate this. But there's don't miss the second dimension to this though either. That to call him son 
Jesus is not the first one who's been called God's son. Israel, the whole nation of Israel as a collective have also been called God's son. Um, you know, Exodus chapter four, it, it says, um, it, it says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. You know, so that's kind of like your slam dunk one. But then, of course, you got Deuteronomy 14. You, speaking to the children of Israel, are the sons of the Lord your God. And then, uh, then Jeremiah 31 says something uh, also very similar. It says Ephraim, which, of course, is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the largest, at least geographically, of the tribes and often is stands in for the whole people of God. So when it says Ephraim is my firstborn, it really, you know, that is a substitute for Israel is my firstborn. And of course, then there's the most famous one from Hosea, which with which Matthew ends up quoting, I believe in chapter two, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. And so here, when he says this, it's not just this identity of Jesus, um, this abstract identity um, that's giving us kind of a window into Trinitarian theology. It is that, but it's more that he also, once again, is he's being called the same name as the people of Israel. So once again, if we didn't already see it clearly before, Jesus is taking the place of his people. He's taking the place of his people, both in terms of his baptism, but also this is divinely ordained by the Father himself. The Father's voice says, you are my beloved Son. When Matthew records this, he writes that the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son. Now, So this is one of those places where you have an opportunity perhaps to pause and reflect, at least for a moment, and maybe we can't give a firm answer. But as Mark records it, you are my beloved Son, that the Father speaks this to Jesus more than he speaks this to, say, John or anyone else who is watching and listening— why why that emphasis? Why speaking directly to Jesus here, do you think? Yeah, Tim, I think you've got as— I'm just about as certain about this as you are. Um, but I, <laughs> if, I could, if I could hazard a guess, it, it obviously makes it a more intimate conversation with Jesus himself. It's between—it's like we're eavesdropping in this conversation between the Father and the Son. But I also think that, um, uh, you know— this, uh, this tells us a little bit about that relationship as well. That in other words, it's not like Jesus is going rogue. Uh, you know, this is all, you know, the, the Father's own divinely ordained plan. Um, this is not his will, but his Father's will. And of course, that comes across very, very clearly in the book of John, like in, you know, chapters 6 and 8, for example, and even later on in the Upper Room Discourse. Um, but I think it, uh, for our purposes, um, you know, I know there's always this debate about how much can the people who are around Jesus, can they actually hear this voice and whatnot? But for our purposes as the readers, I'm not really sure it matters a whole lot because we can hear it in the sense that we can hear it um, because it's written there for us. And it should um, it should encourage us both in the sense that um, that that the Father is fully on board with this plan. You know, it, it's in fact indeed his you are my beloved son. And, uh, and also that this is the, the ongoing relationship that we should understand, especially as we come to the cross where it looks like Jesus himself, you know, where, well, no, where he is forsaken by the father. And yet, um, you know, as, uh, uh, for example, um, 
oh, which psalm was that? It says, you know, you will not let your Holy One uh, uh, see decay, uh, nor will you let him, uh, you know, go to Sheol. Or, and I'm, yeah, psalm I'm, 16, I'm, I think. Psalms, you're right, right. Psalm 16. Psalm 16 that gets quoted by Peter in the, his, his Pentecost sermon. That that relationship between the Father and the Son is deep and enduring and ultimately manifests itself, I think, in the other uh, resurrection. But I'm probably pulling an awful lot out of pronoun there, so you probably should stop me here soon. Fair enough. And I, I you know, again, that's one that I don't know that we can answer it with great certainty, but I, I think to see the united will of Father and Son together in this plan of salvation that has been in place from before the creation of the world. I mean, I think you can see it there. And and not that we would make tons out of that, but to recognize that, yes, this is, you know, we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Well, the Father loves me too, for God so Mm -hmm. loved the world that he gave his only Son. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together for the salvation of the world. And, And, you know, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording today, that there's got to be at least a bit of encouragement for Jesus in this sure. too, as as one who is true man. Right. You know, and one more thought that actually just occurred to me, which I'm sure most pastors have preached at this at this point. Um, if Jesus really comes as the substitute, the stand-in for his people, then the Father's words to him are the Father's words to us. You know, that he wouldn't just say, Oh, that guy, right? <laughs> Pastor Apple. Well, you know, he's, you know, he's one of those beloved people. No, he speaks to you in the second person. He says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And so when he says it to Jesus, he says it to us. And how much, you know, how much more intimately is that uh, than rather than this, it's you. One more thought before we leave the baptism of Jesus. These words of the Father get repeated at the transfiguration. What's the significance of that? Right. You know, the transfiguration is sort of the next big touchstone in the bigger structure of Mark, um, where, you know, these words get repeated about Jesus, you know, with the disciples right there. And so, you know, it's— He's confirming for for his disciples and also for us, uh, you know, Jesus's identity. But when what gets added though is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And um, if if it hasn't if it hadn't been clear prior to this, you know, I mean, it, it's already kind of um, implied, right? That he's, you know, he is. He's not just the son of God, but he's also the suffering servant of uh, of the book of Isaiah. But that what be, has been implicit in the gospel becomes explicit at transfiguration. Because when he says, listen to him, the very next thing that Jesus says is uh, he talks about his, his uh, crucifixion and resurrection, his exodus. And, um, and so if we are to truly listen to him and understand who Jesus actually is, remember that question that really forms so much of our understanding of this gospel, um, that Jesus gives it to us right there. It's his suffering, death, and resurrection. That's who he is. That's actually what defines him uh, you know, as the Son of God for us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
yeah, hopefully I didn't take too much thunder from whoever's going to be doing the transfiguration eventually, but well, I'm, sure I'm sure we'll, we'll need, all forget it by that. That's right. We'll need a reminder when we get to that part <laughs> of Mark's gospel as well. And, and to connect these two texts is important. So from there, Mark moves immediately into the account of Jesus' temptation. And this is where his brevity really becomes apparent when you set this account next to Matthew 4 and Luke 4, as we've mentioned already. So Again, and I'll just read it because it's very short. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. We've got about 10 minutes to talk about this, Pastor Johnson. So a couple of things stand out to me, and I'll let you expound upon them as you see fit. The Spirit is the one who drives Jesus into the wilderness for this. So this isn't an accident. The Spirit actually right. is behind it. Well, just, just to start there, I won't go any farther than that. Yeah, no, that's a really fine point to bring up, uh, because I think sometimes the temptation of Jesus is misunderstood as, you know, some kind of tragic happening that, you know, like Jesus is, is easy prey for Satan, and uh, and he's going to try to pick him off here. Whereas this is actually, this is part of the divine plan, that he would go out into the wilderness, we'll, we'll explain that a little bit more in a bit, and that he would suffer temptation. And, uh, you know, passages, um, I, I think it's Hebrews, right, that says, uh, you know, he uh, you know, he suffered in every way, you know, like his brothers, and yet was without sin. And so I think that's uh, a passage that really articulates this pretty nicely, that um, once again, this makes perfect sense with the what you might call the solidarity argument, um, you know, that Jesus is coming in our place, not just in our place to be baptized, um, you know, but also in our place in temptation as well. Um, he is tempted on behalf of all those who are tempted, um, of course, but, you know, there's a different outcome there. So the Spirit's the one who drives him into, well, the wilderness then. That's the next big thing right. we want to pick up. What's the significance of the place of Jesus' temptation? <laughs> Yeah, well, we it should ring a bell for all of us because who else was tempted out in the wilderness? Oh, that's right, the Israelites were not for forty days, but for forty years. And of course, you know it's it's called a temptation out in the wilderness or a testing, as the uh, you know depending upon your translation. But um, you know it's a little bit more explicit, I think, in you know like Matthew and Luke. But I think it's still there, even in in, in short order. It's the the forty and the wilderness. And if you look at the geography, I think that also leads us to a very very similar point. Although it's funny because Jesus is doing reverse, right? The uh, the Israelites are tempted out in the wilderness. They cross the Jordan River to come into the promised land. Whereas Jesus actually comes out of the promised land, he gets baptized in the Jordan and goes out into the wilderness only to return again. Um, but I think there there may be I think there may be a second half to that which we can touch on in a bit. But when he comes, the thing is he's spending his 40 years. Remember, and the the Israelites were already called um, you know, uh, his son in Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt, I called my son. And so now his son is going back into the wilderness, but this time to undo or to redo, you might say, where the Israelites failed. You know, you almost get this, this impression because, um, you know, like when you're sometimes, you know, your kids have really good intentions, but you give them a job to do and they're like, eh, and they're, they're not ready for it or they totally mess it up. And so, you know, um, I still remember when one of my, one of my girls, I can't remember who it was, um, but they had really messed something up, and, and she just brings it to me. It's a wreck. I can't remember what it was, maybe an art project or something. And all she says is, Daddy, fix it. Daddy, fix it. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm supposed to redo this for her. But that's, that's kind of exactly what Jesus is doing on behalf of his people. They had the 40 years of testing. They blew it. There's no way. Even Moses, even Moses failed. The, you know, the, the faithful servant of God, even he failed. But Jesus will be the one who is even greater than Moses, who will go out to the desert, be tempted. Oh, and, well, and of course, <laughs> I'm, I'm missing the most obvious connection here. It doesn't just go back to the Israelites. It goes back to Adam and Eve, right? You know, they're, they're of course, tempted in Eden itself. And in uh, Jesus, as the new Adam, does what Adam and Eve both failed to do. And he doesn't just redeem his people, he redeems all, you know, all people. He redeems all the way back to Adam and Eve with this uh, with this journey out to the wilderness. And um, Jesus succeeds where they failed. And, and in a way, that's that's kind of the synopsis of the gospel. Yeah, he, he comes to do what sinners could not do, and he does so perfectly. And, and Mark, you know, puts it with such brevity here that you can't help but see that. And not that there's, you know, there's certainly great import in looking at the conversation that is recorded in Matthew and Luke and recognizing how Jesus overcomes the temptation. But just simply to see here in Mark, he beats the devil. He does what you couldn't do. He does what Adam right. and Eve couldn't do. He does what Israel couldn't do. He does what we can't do. And he defeats Satan for us is a, is a huge thing. I, I want to make sure... Uh, well, the wilderness thing, there's there's a connection with Isaiah that I want to pick up, but I also want to make sure we get time to talk about the angels and wild animals, too. So uh, there's make that Isaiah connection for us real quick here. Sure. Actually, why don't we jump to the wild animals, because okay. I think they're Good. shorter, and then we'll go back to Isaiah, because that's a great one to, to end on. So, you know, so Mark mentions, almost like it seems out of the blue, very random. Okay, and the, uh, the there were wild animals, and the angels uh, and the angels were tending them. We know from the other Gospels um, that Jesus actually himself quotes Psalm 91. You know, well, actually, well, first Satan does it, and then Jesus quotes it properly. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, you know, when Satan asked them to jump off the temple. Um, and so already, you know, Jesus doesn't say that's like a bad passage. It's just Satan, you know, dropped off a little bit about your all your ways. And so we recognize that the angels are being sent here to minister to Jesus. He has... He has allies, right? Even as he is given the spirit, also, you know, even the host of heaven is sent to to aid, you know, to come to Jesus's aid, even though they cannot. Um, ironically, Jesus, of course, says um, when uh, he says, you know, hey, don't you think I could command all, you know, a whole host of angels to come down and basically get me off this cross? It's not that they take his place or they do the things that he needs to do, but they come and aid him in what his divine mission is. And uh, so there's that. And then there's this weird, the weird thing, though, about the animals, though. And that is um, uh, we've got a number of similar references, you know, to the wild beasts and the animals um, you know, in the Messianic kingdom. And um, so I'm not positive about this, but um, but it says he was with the wild animals. Well, so is that a good thing or a bad thing? I would argue that it's probably actually a uh you know a good thing in this way in that in that jesus's kingdom is 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 such a kingdom of peace that even the wild animals will not harm him we have a very very similar uh thing in in isaiah isaiah 11 which is of course about him we all know that from you know uh you know as a uh, as a christmas prophecy the wolf shall lie down with the lamb the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion the fat calf together and a little child shall lead them and it goes on but the point of all that is that 
in the kingdom of, of God, there is such remarkable peace that even the wild animals are no longer enemies with each other. And I, that's at least how I interpret uh, that little uh, phrase about the wild animals being with Christ. I think you're right about that. I mean, because it, it, just to take it back to where we started, those days, in those days, that's what's right. here. And the mention of the wild animals here in Mark is just another indicator that those days have come in the person and the ministry of Jesus. So with three minutes, Pastor Johnson, <laughs> take us back to Isaiah there and use that to wrap things up for us this morning. Right. So he, let's go. So we're going back to the wilderness. And of course, um, you, you may, you know, already, and you're the, the hearers or the listeners here might know that wilderness is pretty much the same term as desert. And, um, and of course, that makes you think about all sorts of uh, times in uh, in Israelites' past, not just as their wilderness wandering, but also um, back to the prophecy that we started with from Isaiah. You know, I will send a, a messenger before your face who will say, the voice of one crying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, here's the short version. What separates? You know, when the Israelites are exiled in Babylon, hundreds of miles away from the from their homeland. Um, what are they separated by? They're separated by a big, fat desert. Um, and so that prophecy, at least the way that it functions in Isaiah, is that it is the antidote to their exile, to their Babylonian exile. When it says, you know, prepare the way of the Lord, it, on the one hand, is um, encouraging, exhorting the people to repent. It absolutely is that. But there's a second dimension to all of that. The way of the Lord makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. Why? Because God is coming back. He's coming back. He's crossing the desert. He's coming back from the exile to bring his people back home again, to save them again. And so it's a restoration of exile from theme. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's salvation. It's redemption. It's all of these things rolled into one. And so when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, he goes out into the wilderness only to come back again. He comes back out of the wilderness, you know, to bring his people back home again. And so it, I, I feel like in this, in this one little section, you really have, it's pulling in not just Israelites' first entrance into the promised land, where they finally receive their promised inheritance, but also really their second coming, you know, their second return, you might say, into the promised land from Babylon, from their exile, from their punishment, that they are forgiven and restored to the very place where they should have been in the first place. And Jesus is coming to do this in spades, which will finally kind of all come to fruition as we see it fulfilled in the very last uh, chapters of, uh, of the book of Revelation. So it all comes together. It's all coming out of the wilderness back to the promised land again. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is the pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Jesus was baptized for you. Jesus was tempted for you. In the Jordan, he took your sins upon himself. He carried them to the cross to die in your place. In the wilderness, he defeated Satan for you to set you free from the accuser's power. Jesus has done this for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.